Matthew 7 is, uh, this is a, a very uh, troubling passage. If you're familiar with it, or if you just read it, if you know kind of what to expect out of this, it's a very troubling passage for a couple of reasons. We'll look at those this morning. I don't know uh, who is going to be here when I plan these things, and so uh, I just, as we go through these uh, uh, verses together that God will direct the people that need to hear it to the appropriate sermons. And so this morning we fall uh, on verses 21 through 23, calling this false assurances. As we near the conclusion of Jesus' sermon, we've already considered the a few of the applications to His teaching. A few weeks ago, we were in verse 13 and 14, and it prompts us to check the gate that we entered. It prompts us to check the path that we travel down. And we saw in verses 15 through 20 that there is an importance, there's a, uh, a, an urgency to identify those wolves among the sheep, those false teachers. And we do so by the fruit that they produce in us. But then when we get to this portion here, this next application is, is one I think that is often overlooked. I think I'll make, I'll make a case for that and you'll see that it is something that is a bit overlooked in how we'll, we'll, we'll see it today. This passage addresses two very common misunderstandings about being a follower of Christ. Mind you, this entire time, He has spoken to disciples. At the very beginning of chapter 5, He said that he's, His disciples came to Him and He taught them. So He's speaking to people who at the very least have profess to be followers of His. And he concludes this sermon with a, the importance of building a proper foundation. That we will get to uh, the, that uh, specifically in the next, in the next uh, passage, in the final passage, but it already begins to, to, to manifest itself as a foundation of salvation, or we can call it an assurance of salvation from uh, these three verses before the, 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 the two buildings and the, two, uh, the wise man and the foolish man. In this passage, let's consider two very dangerous foundations upon which people mistakenly build their faith. Uh, these two sandy foundations would be professions of faith and works of righteousness. Now, there's nothing wrong with either one of those in and of themselves. In fact, they're both very important and vital to the Christian life. But they cannot be the foundation that we use to build our faith. In this passage, Jesus continues to describe the false prophets from back up in verses 15 through 20, and he continues talking about them. But what, but in doing so, he also describes many of us in this day and time, and not just people who would consider themselves to be prophets and teachers, but really anybody that would consider himself or herself a Christian. Describes many people who sit in church pews around the world this morning and maybe in this room today claiming to be Christians. We say we are followers of Christ. But if this passage is true, and it is, there are many who truly are not. First, we must understand that a profession of faith is not enough to enter the kingdom. Look in verse 21, if you will. Back in verse 21, he says here that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Simply knowing who Jesus is 
is not sufficient. As we read there, that not everyone who calls Jesus Lord will enter the kingdom. This Lord, Lord, the, 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 the double rep- the repetition of it is, is an emphasis on the fact that He is the Lord or He is the Master. Uh, this, was, uh, this was a sign of great respect. And Jesus is saying that not everybody who says this to me, who calls me Lord or calls me Master, is actually going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the implication is true though that everyone who does enter the kingdom will call Jesus Lord. That part is true. But when he says not everyone who does say it. So if you can imagine a group of people, all of whom say Lord to Jesus, but not all of those people saying Lord will enter. But all of those who do enter will call Him Lord. But Jesus is clear that not all who make this confession do so truly. Just because someone claims to have entered the narrow gate or because they claim to walk the narrow path doesn't mean they actually do. A person can claim to, believe, uh, claim to walk the narrow way. They can even honestly, sincerely believe they are walking the way towards life, yet they will find destruction and separation from God at the end. I'd like to take you, if you hold your Bibles in this spot, but go to Romans chapter 10, if you would. Romans chapter 10 is Paul's uh, helpful illustration of what Jesus is talking about here. Paul is very clear uh, uh, in Romans 10, specifically, of the role of confession in salvation. Confession and, and uh, profession, is kind of, they, they mean different things, but they, some, they sometimes get uh, used interchangeably. Romans chapter 10 and verse number 9 here Paul wrote, uh, writes that although confessing that Jesus is Lord is an important part of salvation, it is only a part of salvation. Look in verse number 9 of Romans 10, uh, and it says there, uh, uh, i got to find it here, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So verse number 9 is telling us that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart. And it says that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Believing that God raised Him from the dead is not merely that Jesus is alive today, but it's recognizing that that, that, that God was satisfied with Jesus' payment for sin, which is why He resurrected Jesus from the dead. And that God accepted Christ's sacrificial death as as payment for uh, sin and for uh, His righteous demands. But verses 9 and 10 are very clear that belief precedes a confession. Verse 10 tells us that we are justified not by a confession, but by believing. He says, with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made to salvation. So this, this justification happens through belief. What, is it, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. The confession is a byproduct of that. You cannot remove that, but it is not the only thing. It does not carry all of the weight in and of itself. Even verse number 14 reminds us that no one will call if they first do not believe. Verse 14, we use it a lot for missionary for, uh, uh, emphasis, but how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? They won't, because if they don't believe, there's no reason to call out. And this is what Paul is, is, is emphasizing here. Now, if you'll go back to, to Matthew here, the people that Jesus referred to in Matthew 7 
make the same profession that all true believers make. Jesus is Lord. Yet, their rejection by Christ at the end of the passage here in the last day shows that there had been no belief. There was a profession, but there was no heart belief. Words do not mean anything without belief. Yesterday in the van, one son hit the other son. And the son, the offending son, was told to say you're sorry. And so he said, I'm sorry. And the offended son said, I don't think he meant it. And I said, he meant it just as much as you mean it when I tell you to say you're sorry. He made a profession, a confession, I'm sorry. But we none of us believe he actually meant it. The only people that mean it are the people in the TV shows. And those of us who have actually grown up and matured enough to realize uh, that we are that we've wronged someone and we're sorry you hurt them. But when you tell your child to say you're sorry and apologize, they they might say it because they don't want more punishment. And that's what that's what we, we see here that these people say the words yet do not believe them. That is why simply reciting a prayer cannot save a person. Making a public profession of supposed faith doesn't count unless there is true faith. Justification does not come through a chant. does not come by a magical spell. One must have faith. Truly believe before confessing. Not only do these people have a confession that sounds good, but in verse 22, if you're looking there, they back it up with good works. They, they have a, a very credible confession of faith and they have good works. Verse 22, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? But Jesus once again reminds us here that good works are not enough to enter the kingdom. This is the second faulty foundation. And this is why these are very sad verses because they tell us that many will think they're going to enter the kingdom. Many live their life today. Many sit in pews across this world uh, on a Sunday morning thinking, all is well, and that they are going to enter the kingdom, but they base it on a faulty foundation. They rely on their good works to earn them a place into the kingdom. They use righteous deeds to defend their right to enter. That's what they're saying here. They're standing before Christ. If you would imagine that Christ is kind of standing at the entrance to the kingdom and they're justifying why they should be able to enter in. And they use good works. Lord, there's a confession. Lord, we did good works. Note note the kind of works that these people do. They prophesy. They cast out demons. They do miracles. In fact, they do many mighty works. And surely they suppose that one or all of these things together are good enough to prove that they should go in. That they entered by the narrow gate, that they traveled this narrow way, and that the fruit they produced was good. Surely they will enter, but Jesus says otherwise. Not only do these people rely on their good works, but they do it all in the name of Jesus. You see it three times there, emphasizing in each of their works, we did this in your name, verse 22. That doesn't mean that they simply spoke the name of Jesus in their, but in, in doing their works. It means that they claim the authority of Christ to do their acts of righteousness. In Jesus' name and by His authority, 
they did many mighty works. And that sounds like a really good thing. It even sounds like a Christian thing. And, and Jesus did these very same works. He cast out demons. He prophesied. And he did miracles. He did many miracles. I think it was Luke that, or John, one of the two, said that if we were to write all of the things that Christ did, we, not, none of the world contained the books that would be written. But there's a problem here. Claiming Jesus' authority is no guarantee that you have Jesus' authority. Declaring that what you do is done in Jesus' name doesn't make it God's will. Look back in verse number 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Those are the people who will enter the kingdom. And the people that think they will enter, but really will not enter, are the people that say, Lord, we did works in your name. But Jesus says you won't enter, and they didn't do the will of the Father. So just because you do good works, just because you think you're doing them for God, does not mean that they are God's will. Jesus didn't deny here that they did good things. But what he rejects is the notion that they did them by his authority. And he says that they still did not do the Father's will. Now to speak in the authority of someone else may produce something. It, it might make something happen as was talked about in, in uh, one of the, the classes this morning in the book of Exodus, when, when, uh, when the, 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 the Pharaoh's magicians came and did their sorcery. We have seen throughout the Scriptures that Satan has a limited amount of power and is, and is able to have his own ministers and do things uh, that would say, oh wow, that, that, oh, look at that, that that's amazing. Let's, let's uh, follow after that. And, and, and there's much warning in the New Testament epistles about, hey, uh, if there's a spirit comes to you and tells us and tries to draw you away, try those spirits, John says, whether they be of God. Simply because it was a miracle done, simply because it sounds Christian, doesn't make it so. Doesn't mean that the authority one claims has actually been granted to them. And it doesn't mean that the authority they claim to possess is the same authority that they possess. They might possess some authority, but it might not be Christ's. Now, Jesus spoke with authority, but He spoke with authority that God gave Him. Even at the end of this, this, uh, this sermon, it says that in verse 29 that He spoke to them as one that had authority, and then to emphasize it, it says, not like the scribes. Jesus spoke with authority, not like scribes, who could not speak with authority. Jesus spoke with authority, and they marvel at this because they think, aren't you the carpenter? Aren't you the one from Nazareth? And yet you speak with authority. You're not educated. You're not, you're not a, 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 you know, a, an intellectual scholar, and yet you speak like you know what you're talking about, and you speak with this air of authority, knowing that what you say is right and true. But Jesus spoke this way because He came, He spoke, and He acted in the Father's name. You can read it in John 5.43. At the end of His sermon, I said that people marveled there, and throughout His ministry, Jesus revealed that His authority was given to Him by God. One of, the one of the more familiar passages comes at the end of Matthew when Jesus is about to deliver His great commission, we call it. Go into all the world and, and make disciples, right? But He pre pre uh, preceded that with all power or all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, go. Matthew 28, verse 17. 
the reason he would send them out is because he had been given the authority of Christ. But the people that Jesus speaks of in this passage here only claim to act by Jesus' authority. There's no verification. And again, we see the result that Christ's rejection of them proves they did not have His authority. In fact, Jesus said that relying on good works, even though they are done in His name or claim to be done by His authority, is considered a work of lawlessness, a work of iniquity. These are good works in their minds, but when Christ comments on them, He says, it's lawlessness. It's iniquity. It's not the Father's will. You didn't do and obey God's will. You didn't obey God's law. You are a worker of lawlessness. These are the false prophets and teachers from verse 15. They are the false disciples that are within the church. They are the tares that grow among the wheat. In Matthew 13, they are the wolves and the goats that walk among the sheep. In Matthew 7.15 and chapter 25, verse 32. These are the people who do not do the Father's will. They do not produce good fruit. They rely on their own works of righteousness. They assume the authority of Christ Himself, yet they are not known by Him. It's maybe the saddest phrase in the Bible, I never knew you. They are not known by Christ. They are not accepted by Christ. What they consider are many mighty deeds for God, Jesus considers works of iniquity and lawlessness. So if a profession of faith and acts of righteousness are insufficient grounds for salvation, then what is? What am I basing salvation on? Jesus says it right here in the passage. Look in verse 21 again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He is the one who will enter. Only those doing God's will will enter the, the kingdom. These are the ones who are known by Christ. But down in verse number 23. Let's unpack these two phrases here. First, what is the Father's will? Well, to do the Father's will simply means to obey Him. That, 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 this, and this sounds kind of like what the false disciples that he, that he is about to reject did, but, it, but uh, it's very different. They did good works, but they didn't do the Father's will. They did good deeds, but they didn't obey God. If, if you want to look over in John 8, uh, and you can see I'm just going to browse through some verses, but I'd encourage you to read John 8, 9, and 10. Really, this week are just filled with statements that help us to understand this. But in John 8, Jesus made several statements that are helpful for us to understand what it means to do the Father's will. Very quickly, verse 38 says, I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. Now he's speaking to people, and he's about to, uh, uh, he's assuming or uh, implying to them that your Father is the devil. You're not of the Father in heaven. That's why you, you hate me. And he says, I do, and I speak of what I've seen with my Father, and you do what you heard from your Father, who is Satan. Then in verse 41, he says that you do the works your Father did. He's saying again, the Father in heaven does certain works. You don't do those works. You do the works of your own Father. Finally, in verse 44, he explained that their will, their desire was to do whatever their Father desired. Again, not this Father. Not His Father. Their Father, the devil. In other words, 
the, Jesus is teaching here that the reason anyone hears God and obeys God is because He is their Father. Simply doing a handful of good works or a boatload of good works is not necessarily doing the Father's will. And you can't just assume that you're obeying God because you've done good works. Jesus explained in Matthew 12.50, I would encourage you to look at these later on too, uh, that He says in Matthew 12.50 that the people that, that do His Father's will are His family. He was in a house and He was teaching and some people came in and said, hey, your mother and your, and your brothers and sisters are outside and they want to see you. And He said, the ones who do My Father's will, they are My mother, My brother, and My sister. In Luke 8.21, He said that in the same story, He said that those who hear the Word of God and do it are My family. So in order to truly do God's will, one must first be in his family as his child. Then and only then can we do what our Father desires. We also learn here that a true confession of discipleship or calling Jesus Lord must include obedience to the Father's will. We know that Jesus submitted Himself to the Father's will. He said numerous times, I have come not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. I've come to do Your will, O God, as the psalmist said. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, He prayed, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what You will. So, if Jesus is truly our Lord, then we are submitted to Him who is submitted to the Father. So here's the Father. And Jesus submitted Himself to the Father. And if we submit ourselves to Christ, then we are also submitted to the Father. So to call Jesus Lord and Master, but not obey Him or not obey His Father is a contradiction of our profession. Jesus said as much in Luke 6.46. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? Why would you call me the Master and not obey? True disciples of Christ will call Jesus Lord, but they also obey the Father's will. Now this other part, this part being known by Christ, is, is very important. It's so important, and, and really I feel inadequate to even try to explain it. As my mind just, I recognize here a great truth, and yet I, I, I grasp for words to try to even put it in my own understanding and to, to really wrap my mind around it, to be known by Christ. Jesus says in verse number 23, He says, I will declare unto them, I never knew you. Depart from Me, workers of lawlessness. And notice what He doesn't say. He doesn't say, then I will say to them, you don't know Me. He says, I will say to them, I don't know you. The very people that claim, basically they say, we know you, Jesus, because all of our lives we did works in Your name. We know who you are. And Jesus said, I never knew you. Have you ever met a, a, a celebrity or someone, maybe a sports figure or someone that you follow and you idolize and you love them? You know them, but when you walk up, they don't know you. You might consider yourself their biggest fan. They don't know you. And what matters more? The fact that you know them or the fact that they know you? We place a lot of emphasis in our day on a person knowing Christ. Questions like, do you know who Jesus is? Have you met the Lord? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Do you know for sure that when you die, you'll go to heaven? And these are all fine questions. 
And I hope you can answer them properly. And I hope you do know Jesus. I want to know Jesus. I want to know Christ more and more and more. But the problem is that many people who are rejected by Christ would answer yes to these questions. You ask them, do you know Jesus? Oh yeah, I know Jesus. Have you, do you know for sure? Oh yeah, I know. But there, many of those people will be turned away by Christ Himself. They fully expect to be in heaven. To be with God. And yet it is Christ Himself who says, I never knew you. What can be more than knowing Christ? Jesus says here, it is more important to be known by Christ. To be known by Him. Jesus knows those who truly follow Him. He said in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Notice there is a, there is a, a phrase there that says that those who are His know Him, but first, those who are known by Him. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep, he continues. Just a few verses later, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. They follow me comes after I know them. Many of you, if you're a reader, you probably have read something of of C.S. Lewis, particularly the Chronicles of Narnia. Came across an interesting illustration this morning I thought was just uh, or the, the, this week that I thought was very appropriate in his book uh, one of the, in the part of the series there the voyage of the dawn treader how many of you have read that book voyage of the dawn treader good all right in this story he describes a boy named Eustace and uh, Eustace is uh, is a, has an encounter with Aslan the great lion Eustace uh, in in the, in a portion of the story enters a dragon's cave and his intention is to steal uh, whatever treasures he can find, but ultimately ends up becoming a dragon himself. And it is when the, the story goes on to explain how the great lion Aslan comes and he saves Eustace. And, and, the, and the phrase there, he undragoned him. He turned him from being a dragon. And, 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 and whereas before Eustace was a mean and selfish boy, after Aslan saved him, he became a very different person. He was now humbled and sorry for his former behavior. He used to be a jerk. And now he expresses uh, remorse and he expresses no desire to return back to the dragon's cave. And in in the story, as as it goes on, Eustace is is recounting his adventure to his cousin uh, uh, Edmund. And his cousin asks him this. he, He asks him what he knows about Aslan. He says, but who is Aslan? Do you know him? And this is how Eustace responds. Well. He knows me. He's the great lion, the son of the emperor beyond the sea, who saved me and saved Narnia. And in this same way, we know who will gain entrance to the kingdom. Not necessarily the people that say, I know him, but the people to whom Jesus, of whom Jesus says, I know him. I know her. As Jesus stand at the entrance, if you will, someone might ask us, as we're waiting in line, if you can imagine it that way. Someone might ask, do you know Him? Will you enter in? And those of us who will enter can say, well, He knows me. Yeah, I know Him. But as Paul wrote in, uh, to the Corinthians, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And as sweet as it is to know Christ, 
it is far better and even much more important to be known of Him. John Piper wrote it this way, deeper than knowing God is being known by God. What defines us as Christians is not most profoundly that we have come to know Him, but that He took note of us and made us His own. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians about how through justification in Christ, they are no longer slaves, but sons. And, and then if sons, then they are heirs. And he writes to them in Galatians 4.8, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? This little phrase, rather to be known by God, uh, Luther calls this rhetorical correction. But it's an interesting way that it's, it's understood here. It's an additional and more important aspect that comes after the first expression. So let me try to help you to understand it real quickly. It doesn't take away from the first part, the knowing God, but what it does is it transfers all of the emphasis and the significance to the second part, being known by God. What's more important here? Being known Knowing God or being known by God. And, and, and the way that Paul uh, eloquently describes this is, is it, yeah, you know God, and that's great. I'm happy for you. But better than that is that God knows you. J.I. Packer echoed the statement when he wrote, what matters supremely, therefore, is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that He knows me. I'm graven on the palms of His hands. I'm never out of His mind. All my knowledge of Him depends on His sustained initiative in knowing me. I know Him because He first knew me and continues to know me. There are many outward signs of our salvation. Doing righteousness is one of them. Serving God is one of them. A profession of faith or a confession of your faith is part of it. And those who truly are saved, those who are true children of God, will display these signs. They will confess their faith. They will serve Him because He is their Lord. They will do righteousness. They will come to know God more and more. But, these are not the basis for our justification. They cannot be. Many of these signs can be manufactured in people who in reality are not known by God. One day, they will be very surprised to hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. These works of righteousness do not produce salvation. They are the product of it. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.19, he said, the Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. If we know God, or rather are known by God, let us display our family ties through humble service and obedience to His will. We don't obey in order to be saved, but because we have been saved. We don't serve Him in order to gain entrance but because we have entered the narrow gate. We don't stand firm in our salvation today because we see good works produced in our lives. We stand firm because Christ knows us. 
He is our firm foundation. We have heard His voice because we are His sheep. And because we heard His voice, we follow Him. Don't look at the works of righteousness that are produced in your life as the measure of your salvation. True, if you are saved, they will be there, but don't look at them and count on them because God will produce works in those who are His workmanship, but good works don't guarantee good fruit. Good works don't guarantee a true confession. Good works don't mean that Christ knows you. How do I know I'm a Christian? The truth is, sometimes I don't feel like I'm one. Truth is, I often don't act like one. But I know I'm a Christian, not because of what I know, not because of what I have done or what I am doing. My list of accomplishments is meager to be generous. And my knowledge of an infinite God is far less than that. I know I'm a Christian because God knows me. Because I heard His voice calling me from death to life. I know I'm a Christian because I believe in Jesus. Not in my works. Not in my righteousness. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood. His righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Friend, what are you relying on today? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What do you rely on today? Is it good works done sincerely and for God? Or do you do the will of your Father who is in heaven because He is your Father? Have you been made a part of the family? Is it some prayer that you pray? Is that what you're relying on? Far better than a profession of faith is the possession of it. Is there any belief with your confession? Is it because you have some knowledge of God? Because you've been to enough Sunday school classes and and, and church services to know the verses and the answers to the questions? Or does Jesus know you? If I were to come to you this morning and corner you and ask you the question, do you know Him? Could you answer, well, He knows me. All other ground is sinking sand.